moment, you'll meet Ontario's Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins, a singer of rock songs who emigrated from Arkansas with a new kind of music that rocks the young in years or young in heart in a way that has nothing to do with inducing sleep. Welcome to the Band of History, a podcast dedicated to exploring the history of the roots rock group, The Band. And before we start, I just want to give a massive thank you to everybody that has supported the show since I announced it almost a month ago. I hope this will act as a resource for people just discovering the band, people who want to know more about their favorite songs or albums, and also for the diehard fans that just want to listen to anything to do with the band. We put a ton of work into it, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Ronnie Hawkins is a musical legend. His influence span over several decades, and Ronnie Hawkins' legendary status is a testament to the hard work and dedication in helping shape rockabilly music not only in the South, but also ushered in a new sound of music to his now home of Canada. Outside of his infectious personality and his maverick-like attitude, Hawkins was an excellent judge of talent. It's deeply underappreciated that his ability to help find and herald talent over several decades helped create some of the largest acts in music history. Not to mention, introduce Canada to some of its best talent. This is why we're starting with Ronnie Hodkins. We will discuss where he came from, what he impacted, and how that led to the creation of the band. Ronald Cornette Hawkins, or as most know him, Ronnie Hawkins, was born January 10th in 1935 in Huntsville, Arkansas. Hawkins came from a middle-class family. His father, Jasper, was a barber and his mother, Flora, was a teacher. In 1945, his family, along with his older sister, Winifred, moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas. He went to school at Fayetteville High and graduated in 1952. He grew up listening to Dixieland jazz, gospel, and blues from the local African-American population and began mimicking what he heard. By nine years old, he was performing with his uncles and aunts at family gatherings or on the family farm. This heavily influenced his music and desire to be a musician. And when he was in high school, he created his first band. Hawkins played local gigs across town, including Shamrock Club and the Bubble Club. When Hawkins finished high school, he decided to attend at University of Arkansas and majored in physical education. He continued to perform and perfect his image. And during this time, he began to craft his outrageous persona that earned him one of his nicknames, Rompin' Ronnie. He performed a sort of camel walk, similar to Michael Jackson's moonwalk, but some 30-odd years before, and also included backflips as part of his act. Hawkins toured through Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri, and soon after, he dropped out of university and served in the U.S. Army for six months. During his time, he was stationed at various different forts, but most importantly was the last, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which was his home for three months. He continued to perform specifically at the Officers Club. 
and this is when he became aware of a man named A.C. Reed, who took Hawkins under his wing with his group called the Black Hawks. The group comprised of mainly African-American musicians, and which was seen as a particularly bold move for Hawkins, especially predating the Civil Rights era. Apparently, Hawkins even got shot at, at least by one person, who opposed the parent. Well, I'll tell you what, we got shot at, we got them scars on my face, that's bottles. That's bottles. That's bottles going in. It, it was rough. Because they shot be her car, because you can mix black and white in those right. days. You could in the army. After leaving the military, Hawkins opened the Rockwood Club in Fayetteville, which became a hotbed for up-and-coming artists. Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins were just a few names that played there. In 1957, Hawkins was offered $100 a week to front a band at the legendary Sam Phillips Sun Records studio. The group was located in Memphis, and Hawkins traveled there just in time to be informed that the band had broken up. Devastated, Hawkins didn't know what to do and feared going back to Fayetteville, as he had previously bragged about his new opportunity. This is when he caught wind of Jimmy Ray Pullman, a respected guitarist who had played with Conway Twitty before he was known by Conway Twitty, who wanted to put a band together. Pullman, along with his cousin Will Pop Jones, who played piano, joined with Hawkins. And seeking a drummer to round out the group, Hawkins knew a local kid from Marvel, Arkansas, who sang and played guitar. His name was Levon Helm, who was eager to learn the drums. Hawks put their nose to the grindstone, relentlessly touring. Night after night of late honky-tonks and frat parties, the band would drive massive Cadillacs, pulling a trailer full of gear across multiple states. The Hawks built a reputation of myth and embellishment, but there are some truths there. A particularly interesting one, according to author Ian Wallace, was once Hawkins threatened to burn down a club because he wasn't paid. He wanted his earnings at any cost. For all the craziness and hard work, that didn't necessarily spell success for the Hawks. There was a ton of competition, and they barely made enough money to survive. Pullman, who had previously played with Conway Twitty, was regularly booked to play gigs in Ontario from a local promoter out of Hamilton named Colonel Harold Cudlitz. Cudlitz would regularly book Southern Rockabilly bands to play Southern Ontario, Quebec, and places along the Canada-US border. Twitty further cemented Pullman's sentiment about good gigs in the North by advising Hawkins to make his way to Canada. We didn't know how, nothing about Canada. We thought it was a wilderness country, you know. We'd seen them, you know, all them wild people, you know, and igloos and Eskimos and Indians and... Mounties. Well, Levon's dad, let me tell you, he'd never been out of Phillips County, Arkansas in his life, Levon's dad. So he's getting ready to make this venture to Canada, right? He said, boy, don't let me warn you. Them damn Canadians are just like a Mexican. They'll stick a knife in you for a dime, so be very careful. Hawkins began touring in Canada in 1958, and his first show was at the Golden Rail in Hamilton. The money was pretty good, making $450 after playing London and Hamilton. This led to Toronto, where he played at the Concord Hotel, a dodgy tavern on Bloor Street. Things were starting to come together, and that led to $2,000 a week stints at Le Codor, which became their home base for nearly a decade. Hawkins soon realized that Canada was a gold mine, 
and he later called it my promised land. It was a promised land. It still is a promised land. They had just put in that uh, uh, Medicare. Yeah. Douglas, Tommy Douglas That's out right. there. And boy, I tell you what, I told my band, I said, man, we're going to stay here. Poor people can go to the doctor. Right. I came to Canada, redneck outlaw, made $3 million and spent five and didn't have to go to the penitentiary. Do that in another country and see what happens. It was better money. The rockabilly sound was new to the area. And Hawkins' style of straight-ahead rockabilly was highlighted by his rambunctious personality. Music critic Jack Batten wrote, The kind of music he plays to start with is filled with shouting, good time, raunchy feeling that is totally infectious. It's difficult to fix his music absolutely in the scheme of current pop music. It derives from rockabilly, it borrows from folk music, the Bob Dylan kind, and from modern Ray Charles type blues. Even more, perhaps, from the earthy muddy waters kind of blues. There's a touch of jazz in it, and it's a whole lot more uninhibited than, say, the Beatles brand of pop. Tall words for the Hawk during this time. Hawkins' high-energy stage act earned him the nickname Mr. Dynamo and made him popular in Canada. Audiences were hungry for rockabilly and really authentic rock and roll. He was also quite the comedian, which made him interesting, poking fun at people in the audience, shouting one-liners, and telling tall tales of his roots from the Deep South. Hawkins originally signed with Quality Records during this time and performed and recorded at the Kingston Road Studios in Toronto. Released originally as the Ron Hawkins Quartet in the summer of 58, their rendition of Bo Diddley became a hit, along with songs like Love Me Like You Can, The Band Was On Fire. Their singles were also getting attention across Canada and into the United States. In 59, Hawkins signed with Roulette Records by Morris Levy, based in New York City, who had been courting Hawkins for some time. Morris said that Ronnie was the one. He moved better than Elvis. And the Hawks enjoyed some success in 59 in the U.S. with singles Mary Lou and 40 Days, a cover of Chuck Berry's 30 Days. Canada was eating up this rock and roll, and Hawkins became somewhat of a teen idol, equaling heartthrobs in Canada like Paul Anka. However, while there was charting success and records, the bread and butter for the Hawks was playing live. Many have been puzzled as to why the once described mayor of the Young Street Underground never truly made it big like Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis. It's been suggested that the label never selected the right tracks for a lead single, or many have suggested they never spent enough time in the studio. Apparently, Hawkins hated it. The money was also better playing gigs six nights a week, with one gig out of town on Sunday. Hawkins also seemed to abandon the South, and was content with the Canadian circuit. Was he bitter? Maybe, but he was happy and successful. But his content wasn't for everybody, and that's when the band members of the original Hogs started to rotate. Jones was homesick, as was Pullman, and they yearned for success in the South and being closer to home. And over the next year or two, the only constant was Levon Helm. The Hawks played with many great musicians over the next few years, some of them legends, including Fred Carter Jr., Jimmy Evans, Scott Cushney, Roy Buchanan, Boyd Sarney, and many more before landing on the lineup that we know as the band. 
After Levon, the second member of the band that joined the Hawks was Robbie Robertson in 1960. Ronnie became aware of Robbie a few years prior. He began playing in bands in 57 with his friend Pete Trainer, who later founded Trainer Amplifiers. After playing in multiple bands, Robbie was in a combo trio with Trainer called the Swades. The Swades opened for the Hawks, and this is where Ronnie first met Robbie. Hawkins eventually hired him as part of his road crew for a while, and even cut two of Robbie's songs, Hey Baba Lou and Someone Like You, for his Mr. Dynamo album in 1959. In 1960, Ronnie summoned Robbie to Arkansas. He was only 16 years old. He hopped on a bus and made his way down to the Deep South to play bass for the Hawks. Though Robbie originally started as a bassist, he had the opportunity to be mentored by Fred Carter Jr. and later Roy Buchanan before taking over lead guitar duties. Next to join the group was 17-year-old Simcoe, Ontario native Rick Danko. Hawkins originally wanted Danko to play rhythm guitar, but bassist Rebel Payne was fired by Hawkins not long after. Hawkins ordered Danko to learn the bass, and by September of 60, he was the Hawks bassist, using a Fender six-string bass. Richard Manuel was the third to join when he was 18. Hawkins first was smitten by Richard's voice when he heard him play in the Rebels, who opened for the Hawk in Port Dover, Ontario. According to Levon, Ronnie said, See that kid playing piano? He's got more talent than Val Kilburn. The Rebels opened for Hawkins again in 1961 in Stratford, Ontario, and after hearing Richard's rendition of Georgia On My Mind, Hawkins hired him. Last and perhaps the hardest to persuade to join the band was Garth Hudson, the 24-year-old from London, Ontario, who was classically trained and had cut his teeth playing funeral parlors and with a group called Paul London and the Capers. When the Hawk became familiar with Hudson's fanatical organ playing, he wanted him. Hudson resisted Hawkins' attempts at first to join the group, but later relented after he gifted him a new Lowry organ and a salary for teaching the rest of the group musical lessons. By Christmas of 1961, he was cemented as a member of the Hawks. Levon later said to Max Weinberg for the book The Big Heat, To get Garth, that was a big day, because nobody could play like Garth anywhere. He could play horns, he could play keyboards, he could play anything, and play it better than anyone you knew. Hawkins just finally bought Garth's time to play with us. Once we had a musician of Garth's caliber, we started sounding professional. Thus, the Hawk's nucleus was solidified. Ronnie and the Hawks cut more than 945s and a few albums between 1959 and 1963. Additionally, the touring continued up and down the east coast of the U.S. with long residencies in Ontario. This further solidified the tight nature of the band and their sound that we hear many years later. However, it wasn't long before the band got impatient. By late 63, the group had split from Hawkins over personal differences. They were tiring of playing the same songs and were wary of Hawkins' dictatorship-like approach to leadership. 
He would fine the Hawks if they brought their girlfriends to the club, fearing it might reduce the number of available girls who came to performances, or if they smoked marijuana. Alcohol and pills were acceptable at the time, since there was heavy legislation against marijuana use in Ontario and Canada. There was also his apparent disappearances from their live show performances. Apparently Hawkins would miss several gigs and other members like Richard would have to take over singing lead vocals for their evening sets. They were upset that I got married. That's what started Ricky Danko, put that in his book if you read it, you know, because I couldn't babysit them anymore. I had to stay home with my wife some of the time, right? you know. Robbie Robertson later said to Andy Gill from Mojo Magazine, eventually Hawkins built us up to the point where we outgrew his music and had to leave. We were all younger and more ambitious musically. And that was the end. Ronnie was left to rebuild the Hawks and the band went out to other ventures. Taking a look at Hawkins, there's a lot of similarities and lines that you can draw out of the band that we'll definitely be discussing as we go on here. But Hawkins continued to play for many decades, finding success. And he remained in Canada and had some very memorable moments even after the boys in the band left. In 1969, he hosted John Lennon and Yoko Ono out of his home during the couple's campaign for world peace. John was one of the nicest guys in the world. You know, I mean, something else, a lot better than I expected, thinking he was the number one man in the world then. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the leader of the Beatles. In 1975, Hawkins was cast by Dylan himself to play Bob Dylan in the movie Ronaldo and Claire. And in 1976, he performed at the band's last waltz. Hawkins continued to play and act even in the 80s, appearing in films like Heaven's Gate and Snake Eater. And in 1995, at the age of 60, he was still performing over 150 gigs a year, which is quite impressive. Lastly, in 2002, October 4th was declared Ronnie Hawkins Day in Toronto, a great testament. In the era that predated CanCon, which promotes Canadian artists on the radio, Hawkins was one of the few people cultivating Canadian music. Not only did he herald and grow the artists that became the band, but he also mentored the likes of Rick Bell and John Till, who left to join Janis Joplin, King Biscuit Poi, Larry Govan, David Foster, and Beverly D'Angelo. Often referred to the father of Canadian rock and roll, Ronnie Hawkins' legend lives on. Thank you for listening and supporting the band A History. The podcast is very much a testament to the music and all its fans. I'm thankful to the community that has welcomed me with warm arms and look forward to making the next episode. Next, we will go into the Hawks after Ronnie, what they did, and what eventually led them to Dylan. Also, we will eventually be doing profiles on each member of the band to further extrapolate on their history. I kindly ask that you share the show with friends and family, 
And remember to find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Band Podcast. Thank you again for listening to the show, and we'll see you next time. This show is produced and written by Tyrell Lisson and edited by Tegan Chevrier. The Band of History is not endorsed by the band, Ronnie Hawkins, or any affiliated stakeholders. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All audio clips are registered trademarks or copyright of the original trademark and copyright owners. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.